0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous. has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp, as Yahweh said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with Yahweh, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to Yahweh for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever any one gives to the priest shall be his. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, for if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it, and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before Yahweh. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before Yahweh and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse." Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse, and say to the woman, Yahweh make you a curse and an oath among your people, when Yahweh makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away, and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness and he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand, and shall wave the grain offering before Yahweh and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion, and burn it on the altar, and afterward shall make The woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself, and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain, and her womb shall swell, and her thigh shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself, and is clean, then she shall be free, and shall conceive children. This is the law in cases of jealousy, when a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man, and he is jealous of his wife. Then he shall set the woman before Yahweh, and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, and the woman shall bear her iniquity. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 621 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, May 18th, 2023. And that was a reading of Numbers chapter five, which I'll admit, as with much of the Old Testament law, can make us a little bit uncomfortable. And it can make us a little bit maybe even confused, perhaps, or unsure of what to do with it. First off, the brief paragraph, unclean people. So you have this command from God to put those who are unclean, anybody who is leprous or has a discharge or has become unclean through contact with the dead, male or female, put them outside the camp because even their just being in the camp defiles the camp and God dwells in the midst of the camp. That can be a bit jarring for many of us who don't study the Old Testament. We don't look at the law to know that God commands putting those who are unclean outside the camp. That can be jarring for us. This isn't his interpretation. This isn't Pharisaical extending the law or elaborating or adding to the burdens of the people. No, this is God saying, put anybody who is unclean in these ways outside the camp because they will defile the camp. Then next, you have this paragraph about confession and about restitution, about guilt, about who the contributions should go to if there is no next of kin. And that also can be just a tad confusing. Like, what do we do with this? What are the principles for life that we carry forward? What stays in the Old Testament? That was for then. This is now. We're no longer under the law. And what, if anything, can we glean about God's character? Well, for one, if I may... We need to understand that sin is still very much a reality in the New Testament, which we currently reside in, the New Testament. In fact, everything from the birth of Christ, from the announcement of the birth of Christ forward is the New Testament. Everything from the resurrection of Christ forward is the new covenant. And yet, we find in the epistles in the New Testament that We are still grappling with sin, our own sin, one another's sin, the sins of those who don't know Christ, the sins of those who are Christians. We're still reckoning with the problem of man's moral failure. And we find here in Numbers that this is breaking faith with Yahweh. And actually, too... It says in verse 6, when that person realizes his guilt, which is to say, and we see this elsewhere in the Old Testament law, sometimes people sin and they don't even realize that they have sinned right away. It's not flagrant. It's not intentional. It's not deliberate. It's not premeditated. They didn't set out to sin, but then they realized after the fact, maybe after somebody brought it to their attention, see also Matthew 18, see also Matthew 5, They realize that either they've sinned against somebody else because that person comes to them and says, you've sinned against me, or they are offering their offering to God and it comes to mind. And they're thinking about their own condition, their own standing before God, their own relationship with God. And they realize, I have sinned. I sinned against this person. I didn't think about it, but I did. I wasn't meaning to, but I did. What does God say? He says, confess the sin. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with Yahweh, he shall confess his sin, verse 7, that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. So that is to say you add a fifth and you restore the person you sinned against. You make peace, you make them whole if you have damaged them in some way. And then verse nine, every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest shall be the priests. So if there's nobody necessarily to give this to, give it to the priest. And then the priest will have that as part of the priest's living. Some of what he has in the way of sustenance for him and his family will be that donation. And that pleases God. This is what God commands. And this is what pleases him. But then we get to verse 11. Verse 11, on to the end of the chapter, verse 31. We have a test for adultery. And I know that I am liable to ruffle feathers in saying what I am saying right now, in saying and pointing out what I'm going to point out. But all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. What do we find here and what do we not find here? In the context of a test for adultery, we do not see, as we did in the previous paragraph or the one previous to that, this egalitarian type language. We don't see, as it says in the confession and restitution section, man or woman commits any of the sins. And we don't see male or female, you will put them out of the camp. What we find instead is even if you just have an issue of a jealous husband who thinks his wife has been unfaithful, here's how that's going to be handled. What you don't find is as significant as what you do find here. What you don't find is if the wife is jealous, well, she can also bring her husband to the priest. And here's the test. It's not egalitarian. This is not all the same, whether it's a husband who is suspected of having had relations with some other woman, or it's the wife who is suspected of having relations with some other man. It's not all the same. And this is very uncomfortable. This is very jarring for many of us in this day because feminism and radical egalitarianism has Seeped so deeply into our thinking about men and women and marriage, and community life and our relationship with God, that we just assume—if we don't look at God's Word—we just assume that it's all the same, and it's not. It's certainly not in this passage. If you know of a different passage that you can bring to my attention, by all means, send it my way. My email address is gerdashlemullet@protonmail.com. You can write to me with a passage I might have missed. I'm open to being corrected on this. I certainly am. But in the absence of such a passage, what we find is even a husband who is just suspecting that his wife has been unfaithful can bring her to the priest. And then what follows is a ceremony, which is not deadly, by the way, that's important to note. This is not like the Monty Python skit with the woman who's accused of being a witch and she's brought forward, all dressed up like a witch. How do you know that she's a witch? Well, she looks like one. Well, they dressed me up like this. No, 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 no. Well, we did do the nose, <laughs> But she's a witch. You know, it's not like that. That's comedy. That is not actually what God's word says. That's not God's command. God's command is rather more gentle, you might say, or merciful or magnanimous. And in some sense, this is the way of diffusing the whole problem with regards to the jealous husband. He has no evidence per se, necessarily. It might just be his imagination is getting the better of him. He might just be very insecure. He might just be looking at some other man who is in the community and thinking she probably likes him better than she likes me. She probably prefers him to me. And if there's ever any, you know, glimmer of friendliness or an exchanging of looks or anything like that, then he is just off to the races in suspecting the worst. Now he's a jealous husband and she might be totally innocent of any wrongdoing whatsoever. And what's the test? The test is God knows. If no man saw this, well, then you're not going to condemn an innocent woman. It could be that her husband is totally wrong, and it would be wrong to then punish her if her husband's just got an overactive imagination, or he is jealous, or he's abusive. That's another possibility. He just wants to get rid of this woman. So he's accusing her of doing something that he could then dismiss her for. He would have grounds for dismissing her, or maybe they had a dispute and his way of getting back at her is to accuse her of this thing, threaten to accuse her of this thing, and then she can be destroyed easily enough. God is very wise. In fact, he's all wise. And God knows the truth of the situation. God knows whether this woman is innocent or guilty. And even if she's guilty, the consequence here, God's justice is not, interestingly enough, it is not that she just automatically is going to drop dead. She's going to perish. And this is not insignificant. Why I say this is important is because you should consider what was normative in other cases, in other societies. On the one hand, you might've had some rare exceptions like Sparta, for instance, where it was common for there to be open marriages, essentially. In fact, ancient Greek historians Writing not so far off from this time that God is giving the law to Moses, ancient Greek historians commented on how the Spartans had this very odd, very peculiar habit of giving their wives to friends or notable men so that they could get children by those other notable specimens in the community. And that was not normal, even for the Greeks, even for the non Christian, non-Jewish, not God's people, Hellenes. It was not normal. What was more normal was that if there was an instance of infidelity, a jealous husband could go absolutely scorched earth, not just destroying his spouse, but anybody he suspected of having taken his spouse. Look at Helen of Troy, for instance, and the Trojan War, for instance, that pulled all of the Hellenes in, all of the Achaeans in, and reportedly led to the destruction of an entire city. And entire people was displaced if they didn't die in that conflict. And by contrast, here you have God Being a God of order, as he always is, saying, if there's a suspicion of infidelity, here is what will be done. And we know elsewhere in God's law, if it is a fact, it's a material fact, it is known she and this other man, the wife and some other man were caught in flagrante, then they're both to be taken outside the camp and put to death. They're to be stoned with stones or some such, depending on the nature of the affair. And even that we say, oh, but that's even, right? That's If it's the man who has been committing adultery, he also gets put to death, right? No, actually not as we think of adultery as being this egalitarian thing. If the man is married and he has relations with some single woman who is not his wife, that is not punished by death in the Old Testament law. And there can be a lot of reasons that we might speculate as to why that would be, and it can make us very uncomfortable, and we can (laughs) not want to go into all that, not want to talk about all that. We can cast aspersions at people who will draw attention to that fact, but there's no getting around it. There's no getting away from it. We need to be very careful that we're not misrepresenting what God said and what he didn't say when we come to the New Testament. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, to lust after her, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We should be very careful that we understand the context of the Old Testament so as to correctly understand what it is that Jesus is actually describing there. Be it known that biblically, it wasn't just if a woman was already married and she had relations with some other man who wasn't her husband, it was also, if she was just betrothed, if she was just simply even engaged to be married, it was considered adultery. Except in a few very special circumstances, like if she were a slave and she weren't free, in which case there would be a way of making it right, which the man, in that case the slave owner, had to follow to make restitution for his sin. It was still a sin, but he wasn't put to death, and neither was she put to death. But otherwise, it doesn't make sense in the New Testament that Joseph resolved to divorce Mary quietly because he knew that he was not the father of the child she was pregnant with. Here she was pregnant, and they were only engaged to be married. He assumed, as any reasonable person would, that she would not have gotten pregnant if she had not been unfaithful. And so it's important for us to not go back and deal with our discomfort or deal with the collective discomfort of this age with biblical morality generally by recasting the whole business surrounding sexual ethics so as to cater. Because if we start doing that with regards to adultery and polygamy, for instance, that's another example, which Many Christians today have a real problem with, we have a real problem with the patriarchs and the kings of the Old Testament having had multiple wives. If we start doing it with those passages, then how do we have a leg to stand on to object when progressives recast sexual ethics in the Bible to accommodate homosexuality, bisexuality, and transgenderism? It's a dangerous precedent if we start reimagining these texts to suit our interests, our agendas, or what is going to be palatable. We're the ones who are supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're commanded not to conform to the pattern of this world. We are commanded to not twist the scriptures. But that might involve being uncomfortable and just accepting that some of this is just uncomfortable. Some of this is hard to understand, and that's okay. Moving on, some current events items, and then we've got some rather big things, more macro-level topics to explore regarding the relationship of Christian faith to the government and culture of the United States of America. Stay tuned for that. I've got a few articles that were sent to me by my neighbor Two Houses Down, J.P. Chavez. Thank you, as always, to my research assistant, informally, as it seems, (laughs) who supplies me with lots of material, lots of really great food for thought, great discussion, and great articles to consider and to share with you. Before we get into that, I'm going to play a audio clip for you from an interview that CNBC had with Elon Musk and a certain question that was asked and made issue of, and which we need to talk about. We've gotta talk about it. And I agree with Planet Moron over at Not The Bee. We need to talk about it. The question is as important as Elon Musk's answer. Here it is, without further ado, cut one, take a listen.
1: But how do you make a choice you don't see, I mean, in terms of when you're going to engage. I mean, for example, even today, Elon, you you, you tweeted this thing about George Soros. Well, I'm looking for it because I want to make sure I quote it properly. But, I mean, you know what you wrote. But you basically. I said it
2: reminds me of my veto. This is like, you know, calm down, people. This is not like made a, like a federal well, case out of it.
1: You also. <laughs> you, know, you said he wants to erode the very fabric of civilization and Soros hates humanity. Like, when you do something like that, do you. Yeah, think I think about, that's true. That's my opinion. Okay. But why share it? why share it especially i mean why share it when people who buy teslas may not agree with you advertisers on twitter may not agree with you um why not just say hey i think this you can tell me we can talk about it over there you can tell your friends but why share it widely
2: i mean uh, this is freedom of speech i'm allowed to say what i want you
1: absolutely are but i'm trying to understand why you do because you have to know it's got a there it puts you in a in the middle of a the partisan divide in the country it makes you a, a lightning rod for criticism i mean do you like that i you know people today are saying he's an anti-semite i don't think you are
2: no i'm definitely i'm, I'm like, like i'm like a pro-semite
1: <laughs> if anything <laughs> i i believe that probably is the case yes. but why would you even introduce the idea then, that that would be the the case i i mean listen,
2: we don't want to make this a, a george soros interview no um, god no i don't so, i don't want to at uh, all but
1: i'm what i'm trying even came up though in the annual meeting i mean You know, do your tweets hurt the company? Are there Tesla owners who say, I don't agree with his political position because, and I know it because he shares so much of it. Or are there advertisers on Twitter that Linda Yaccarina will come and say, you got to stop, man. Or, you know, I can't get these ads because of some of the things you tweet.
2: You know, I'm reminded of uh, the, the, the scene in The Princess Bride, great movie, Great movie. Um, where he confronts the person who killed his father, and he says, um, I, offer me money, offer me power, I don't care.
1: So you just don't care. You want to share what you have to say?
2: I'll say what I want to say, and if, 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 uh, if the consequence of that is losing money, so be it.
1: Okay.
0: Hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. <laughs> <laughs> ah, this is great. This is great. I love it. Just so you know, also, if that seemed like a really long pause. Dead air is what you might call it. It was 12 seconds long. 12 seconds of Elon Musk looking off to the side, thinking about how he was going to answer next before offering up a quote from The Princess Bride. I understood the reference. I get it. This is personal. This is not about the money. This is about something more fundamental, more primal, more foundational. You might even say that this is about what it means to be human and to be free. And really, let me ask the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What is the money good for if not to provide freedom? And if Instead of making you more free, it makes you more of a slave. Well, then the money is getting in the way of life. And Elon Musk seems to understand that. And the <laughs> CNBC talking head, I don't mean to be rude or disrespectful, but David Faber is, it would seem to me, not understanding or he's intentionally miss representing in that moment the reason for the princess bride quote. It's not that Elon Musk just doesn't care. He's not a crazy person. He's not somebody, from what I've seen and heard, he's not somebody who just doesn't care about how the company does, clearly. It's not that he just doesn't care what the ramifications might be or that some people might be offended or upset. It's that there is something more important than just whether some people are going to be upset, whether this is considered to be a partisan divide, whether this is considered to be something that you're just not supposed to talk about. You're not supposed to wade into these waters on that side of it. And just to be very, very clear, if Elon Musk were speaking out in favor of, in defense of George Soros, the corporate media would be all over it. They would love that. They wouldn't. Fault him for it. They wouldn't tell investors to eh, watch out, you know, maybe don't invest in his companies, maybe pull your money out, maybe reinvest over here. The regulators and the Democrat politicians wouldn't be scrutinizing his business. They wouldn't be calling for more legislation, more regulation of his business in a punitive way. But because he's criticizing George Soros, it needs to be presented that maybe he's just not a good manager. He's not a good business person. This isn't good business. And it's a, a chilling and extraordinarily tense visual, the body language and the facial expression and that 12-second pause. You can see, I can see the irritation at, what are you doing, right? Is this supposed to be a George Soros interview. I thought that this was an Elon Musk interview. (laughs) And here are the tweets in question, by the way, that are being referenced. May 15th, Elon Musk tweets out, Soros reminds me of Magneto. Brian Krasenstein replies, fun fact, Magneto's experiences during the Holocaust as a survivor shaped his perspective as well as his depth and empathy. Soros, also a Holocaust survivor, gets attacked nonstop for his good intentions, which some Americans think are bad merely because they disagree with him. Elon Musk replied to that and said, you assume they are good intentions. They are not. He wants to erode the very fabric of civilization. Soros hates humanity. That's what Elon Musk tweeted out. And that's the double whammy, really. It's entertaining, but also this is how you speak to those who think in movie quotes. This is how you speak to people who have been living in something like the Matrix for their entire childhoods and young adult lives, and they don't realize the game that's been played with their future with the core of what it means for them to be human. When you start to realize the man behind the curtain, which is not a bad book to check out if you haven't caught my review of that book, you can go back, check it out, or check out the book itself by Matt Palumbo. But when you start to realize how comprehensively and over what span of time George Soros has been tinkering with, fiddling with, manipulating the political process in Europe and here in the US and in other countries, and to what end and in what ways, how he funds activists leftist activist organizations, how he had invested heavily in Ukraine, how he has invested heavily in major American cities to get activist district attorneys into office who will not prosecute crime if it is from Democrats, from those who are intersectional, but they will prosecute somebody trying to defend themselves from violent criminals in major cities. When you start to look at George Soros' business dealings and how manipulative and disastrous for the British people, for instance, his messing with the Bank of England was, and how wealthy he got off of manipulating the currency and crashing, in some sense, the British economy. When you start to realize that he worked for the Nazis as a Jew in his younger years and doesn't regret it at all because he was just following orders. He was just doing what he was told to do. He didn't know any better. No, he doesn't feel bad at all. A picture starts to take form that George Soros hates his own people, hates humanity. It's not anti-Semitic to criticize him just because he's a Jew, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, was accused of anti Semitism for criticizing George Soros. Benjamin Netanyahu, a Jew, prime minister of the Jewish state, was called anti Semitic for criticizing George Soros. It makes zero sense, except when you realize that Soros has bought American politicians and activist organizations and the media, and he has invested heavily. In controlling the narrative. And here's Elon Musk. And there's something of a clash of the Titans here because both of these men are very wealthy. And both of these men have apparently competing visions of the future of humanity and what would be best for the future of humanity. And here's the corporate media teeing off, trying to undermine in a very subtle way the successful execution by Elon Musk of his vision for what would be good for the world. It's a fascinating, fascinating interview. You should watch it. Don't just have listened to it on this podcast. Watch it and see what you think. But here is a second clip I'll play for you from that same interview where Musk is talking about the relationship between the U.S. and China right now. Here it is.
2: Cut to. Take a listen.
1: Are you concerned at all about the growing belligerence between China and the U.S.?
2: Um, I think that should be a concern for everyone.
1: <laughs> I, I think you're right. I think yeah. it is shared by many people who run large organizations and smaller ones. Do you think, for example, China will, will make a move to take control of Taiwan?
2: The official, the official, the official policy of China is uh, that um, Taiwan should be integrated. Mm-hmm. One does not need to read between the lines. one can simply read the lines
1: do you think that, <laughs> so
2: I, I think there's a certain there's some
1: inevitability to to the situation that would not be good for Tesla conceivably or for any any company in the world frankly
2: yes for any company in the world i i, I think most almost no no one realizes that uh, uh, the Chinese economy and, and the, global, the rest of the global economy are like conjoined twins. Uh, it, it would be like trying to separate conjoined twins. That, that's the severity of the situation, um, and it's actually uh, worse for, for a lot of other companies than it is for, for uh, Tesla. I mean, I'm not, su- not sure where you're going to get an iPhone, for example. mean um, Apple's. Recently, started doing some, some sort of small amount of production in, in India, but it's tiny. It's tiny.
1: To. Not to mention an advanced semiconductor chip. If they take over Taiwan Semi, correct. I so mean, you design your own chips, but you manufacture them at Taiwan Semi too, right?
2: Uh, we do some. We do. We do. We use Samsung anti TSMC. Right. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> but you yeah. seem
1: to think it's it's likely to happen.
2: I'm simply saying that that is their policy. And I think you should take their word seriously. <laughs> they mean it.
0: And that's true, of course. Also, they do mean it. China does mean it. Face is extraordinarily important to China. China being in the name of their country, the People's Republic. Nevertheless, China is ruled by the CCP, which is literally the Chinese Communist Party. There is one party rule in China. You do not challenge the Chinese Communist Party. You do not correct it. You don't disagree with it. You don't criticize it or else you disappear. That is the official way of ruling and governing in China by the CCP. And they have been, as he says, very explicit as to their policy, as to their intentions. You don't have to read between the lines. Read the lines. (laughs) They're not mysterious about it and they mean it. But now let's go back to the earlier comment about George Soros. The earlier clip that I played was posted by Cardinal Pritchard over at Not the B. But Planet Moron, whoever he is or she is, says, we need to talk about what Elon Musk was asked in his CNBC interview. It's at least as important as his answer. As the write-up at Not the B points out, and I'll read this for you. The legitimacy of this line of questioning must be challenged right at the get-go and at every turn. The question isn't why share it and never should be. The question is why not share it. And unless there's an answer other than, well, it's controversial, the conversation should end there. Yes, Musk has a business to run and he could very much damage his financial and social standing when expressing his opinions. Faber made that crystal clear. But isn't that true for all of us? It's on a much smaller scale, of course, but it's very big to us as individuals. We can lose friends, neighbors, jobs. Our kids can be socially shunned. It's happened, and it's the core of cancel culture. When Faber asked, why share it? He's not just asking Musk. He's asking all of us. Progressives like to point out that, of course, you have free speech, but that doesn't mean there aren't consequences. Well, if there are consequences, that's not free speech, is it? And here, I'll disagree a little bit with this not-to-be writer, and I'll say, Free speech doesn't mean that there aren't consequences, but those consequences, when they are the result of other people responding to what we've said, those have a moral character as well. You could say that our speech has a moral character. There's moral content if we say things that we know to be false, for instance, that are destructive to somebody else's reputation, not true and also damaging There's moral content to our speech, and there can be consequences. If you slander somebody, if you bear false witness against them, there are consequences, humanly speaking, and there are consequences according to God. God says, this is one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. But if you say a true thing, here's the flip side. If you say a true thing, but the many are against you, or the powerful are trying to bribe you or threaten you by turn, To not say that thing and you say it anyways, and then they say, we're going to really get you now. You're going to pay. We're going to punish you for having said that true thing. There is moral content to the reprisal. There's moral content to the threat of punishment for saying a true thing. There is moral content to the bribing. Hey, say what I want you to say and no more. Don't say this thing that is true. If you don't say this thing, I will reward you. If you do say this thing, I will punish you. There's more content there. And free speech constitutionally, historically for Americans is not the same thing as saying speech without consequence, but it is to say that the government, the U.S. government, is not going to come after you for being critical of your own government. How odd is it if on Twitter criticizing a billionaire criticizing his political engagement, his tinkering with the fabric of society, the fabric of Western civilization itself, criticizing him for his initiatives, his ambitions, his larger-than-life moves, criticizing him, questioning him, will be punished by the media or politicians who have been paid for by him. These are important consequential questions, very consequential. You know, it's one thing if you're in communist China and you criticize the government and you disappear, we say, well, what did you expect? It's a communist country. That's what happens in communist countries. You don't get to criticize the party leadership. You don't get to challenge what the party has told you to do and to not do. You don't get to question it. You don't get to disobey. You don't get to debate it. You do what they tell you or you disappear. And on the flip side, here in the U.S., there is the appearance of freedom to say what you will, but if you question George Soros or challenge George Soros or say something critical of him, then maybe we need to take a closer look at your business dealings. Maybe we need to take a closer look at your mental health. Maybe we need to call into question your management. Maybe you shouldn't be allowed to say these things. It's chilling, really. And I would say it is as concerning, but it's also part of the larger concern with communist China taking Taiwan and by extension, potentially trying to take over the whole world for the same reasons that we don't want communist China to take Taiwan and all of the semiconductor manufacturing that happens there. For the same reason, we don't want China to rule the world and we've seen what they do to the Uyghurs. We've seen what they did with the one child policy. We've seen what they've done with forced organ harvesting. We've seen what they did with COVID, or at least the large role that they played in concealing timely information about the origins of COVID, the nature of COVID, that it did in all probability, in all likelihood, come from the Wuhan Institute for Virology. We've seen this. And if in the United States of America and in the West, the actions, the campaigns of George Soros make us little to no better than communist China, well, then it's just as concerning, if not more concerning, because either A, these George Soros initiatives will succeed, in which case, what was the point in not being conquered by China or not losing a major war to China? or The initiatives of Soros and his groups, his cronies, his organization, will have weakened the United States and Europe sufficient for China to dominate and to win. Both are very real, very valid concerns, not conspiracy theories, and not at all anti-Semitic. Not at all about being hateful towards the Jews as a people. No, no. You can't hide behind the fact that he is a Jew. That is not permissible. Unless I'm saying, oh, he's doing this because he's a Jew, which I'm not saying, which conservatives consistently are not saying, not to say nobody says that, nobody goes there, but conservatives in the mainstream do not say any such thing, any such thing. I've spoken up in defense of Dennis Prager. I watch somewhat regularly Ben Shapiro's program. I appreciate his input, his insight. These are two Jews, not even Christian Jews. Andrew Clavin, very funny guy. He is a Christian, but also ethnically a Jew. I've spoken up in defense of the modern state of Israel and its right to exist and to defend itself and its people many, many times in my blogging and in my podcasting. I shouldn't need to prove that I'm not an anti-Semite, but that's just it. It's ridiculous to suggest, to imply that maybe Elon Musk is an anti Semite because he's criticized George Soros. If you read Mad Palumbo's book, you'll find that this is classic. This is the way that the media threatens, bullies, delegitimizes, attacks anybody who draws critical attention to George Soros. They consistently do this. But let's step away from Elon Musk for a minute and let's put George Soros aside for a moment. Although here also in this next story, I'll share with you. He is very active here in the US and in Europe. Tim Meads reports for the Daily Wire, pick the crops and clean our homes. Democrats love illegal aliens for cheap labor and votes. Tim Meads writes, Democrats love Having illegal aliens flood the country. No, not because they are children of God or whatever platitudes the Dems throw around in vain. It's because, as the left sees it, these men and women supply an abundance of cheap labor and votes, though they would never admit the second part. Ever since President Joe Biden was inaugurated, the border has been a sieve. Illegal aliens from all over the world have entered the United States. In reaction to this crisis, Republicans have tried varying legal actions to crack down on the lawlessness. In response, Democrats have let it be known that they think all these individuals are really good for is crop picking, toilet cleaning, and other manual labor. Republicans, in the Democrat Party's mind, are the bad guys for wanting secure borders. They want you to believe that they are the good guys for supporting an economy based on financial exploitation. Consider that on Wednesday, disgraced ex-DNC chair and current Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Democrat from Florida, grumbled about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' new E-Verify law to ensure that employers hire American citizens and legal residents, among other objectives. Wasserman Schultz warned MSNBC viewers that our nation's veggies would soon begin to decay in the Sunshine State because of DeSantis's new law. I'll go ahead and play this. This is cut three. You can hear for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Thank you to the Post Millennial for tweeting this out. Here it is, cut three. Take a listen.
2: When uh, Arizona did the same to uh, to their immigrants in their in their state, he's going to devastate our economy, tourism, construction. Agriculture. I mean, you're going to have vegetables rotting in the fields. You're going to have construction sites that will lie dormant, uh, or certainly will struggle to get workers to be able to, uh, to 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 help make sure that they can make progress. The tourism is it tourism and restaurant industry in particular, you know, rely on the on these workers.
0: And for good measure, here is a tweeted video from Freedom Works of. Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat from Washington, making similar comments. Cut four.
1: This country needs immigrants to survive. Immigrants pick the food we eat, rebuild our communities after climate disasters, help construct our infrastructure, power our small business economy, clean our homes, and look after the most precious in our families, our children and our elders.
0: And for good measure, one more clip. This will be cut five. Here is Nancy Pelosi making some comments last fall along the same lines. Here it is, cut five.
1: The fact is, is that uh, we have a responsibility to secure our border. We also have a responsibility to recognize the importance of newcomers to our nation. Right now, the best thing that we can do for our economy is to have comprehensive immigration reform. We have a shortage of workers in our country. And you see even in Florida, some of the farmers and the growers saying, why are you shipping these uh, immigrants uh, up north? We need them to pick the crops down here. But that doesn't mean that we don't recognize our moral responsibility as well.
0: Okay, that's enough. On a lighter note, the Babylon Bee reports, May 15th, Border Patrol, not too sure about this Mohamed Sanchez guy, San Diego, California. Authorities say they aren't quite sure what to make of the totally Mexican man they picked up over the weekend who identifies himself as Mohamed Sanchez. According to sources, he crossed the U.S.-Mexico border with a caravan of undocumented immigrants, but drew a lot of attention to himself because of his thick beard, turban, and what he claimed was a purely decorative AK-47. Yeah, this guy, I don't know, something's off about him, admitted Border Patrol agent George Dalton. I mean, he looks Mexican, sorry, I mean Latinx, but he doesn't speak a lick of Spanish. Also, he was carrying a Quran, which I guess is a Muslim choose-your-own-adventure book or something. Pretty sure Latinx people don't read those weird squiggly words. On the other hand, his last name is Sanchez, and he says he's super Mexican. I'm not sure where to go on this one. Also concerning was the manifesto found on Sanchez's person, which describes a passion for killing infidels and calls for, quote, the great Satan to be wiped off the face of the earth, end quote. However, Sanchez maintains the manifesto is merely fan fiction for Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Another piece from the Babylon Bee. This is not the not the bee. This is the Babylon Bee. Also May 15th, Biden finally draws larger crowd than Trump. El Paso, Texas, the mainstream media, has been heaping praise on President Biden for finally drawing a larger crowd than former President Trump. According to reports, hundreds of thousands are gathering in El Paso, and it's all because of President Biden. Quote, these are truly historic numbers we are seeing. Trump could never get this many people, even at his biggest rallies, gushed CNN anchor Anderson Cooper. Quote, this is an incredible moment for President Biden. He's clearly resonating with the American people. Well, the people anyway. And it's clear that his policies are making a real difference. End quote. Upon seeing the massive crowds, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow added, quote, this just goes to show that people are hungry for real leadership and real strength. President Biden is clearly delivering on that front, end quote. Many news sites praised the crowd for its youthfulness and diversity, quote, just look at how young a crowd Biden pulls, end quote, exclaimed Anderson Cooper, quote, all those unaccompanied minors, I mean, Democrat voters, and it's all thanks to Biden. When asked for comment, even Trump had to admit that it was a, quote, tremendous and unbelievably large crowd of people that, to be quite frank with you, I could never draw. Believe me, end quote. Moving on. (laughs) Reformation21.org has a piece written by Rosaria Butterfield, published April 3rd of this year, titled, Why I No Longer Use Transgender Pronouns and Why You Shouldn't Either. Rosaria Butterfield writes, A civil war erupted within broad evangelicalism and the idol of LGBTQ plus is dividing the house. This issue is personal, political, and spiritual for me. In 1998, I became one of the first crop of so-called, quote, tenured radicals, end quote, in American universities, proudly touting my lesbian street cred. In 1999... Christ called me to repentance and belief, and I became a despised defector of the LGBTQ plus movement. But progressive sanctification came slowly, and I have failed many times during these past decades. After I have learned lessons, I have earnestly tried to course correct, and that's the problem. My use of transgendered pronouns was not a mistake. It was sin. Public sin requires public repentance, not course correction. I have publicly sinned on the issue of transgender pronouns, which I have carelessly used in books and articles. I have publicly sinned by advocating for the use of transgender pronouns in interviews and public Q&As. Why did I do this? I have a bunch of lame and backside covering excuses. Here are a few. It was a carryover from my gay activists days. I wanted to meet everyone where they were and do nothing to provoke insult. When the Supreme Court decided in favor of gay marriage, the danger of my position started to come into focus. The codification of gay marriage and LGBTQ plus civil rights launched a collision course between LGBTQ plus and the Christian faith. The LGBTQ plus movement's understanding of itself as ontological and morally good conflicts with the biblical account in Genesis one twenty-seven. Which is it? Which side was I on? Is LGBTQ+ plus a normal option in the ever expanding menu of sexual orientation and gender identity needing a little Jesus to aid human flourishing or does LGBTQ+ plus come from Satan as a reflection of the world the flesh and the devil is it part of God's creational design or rebellion against the creation ordinance it's one or the other because the Christian faith is inherently binary not non-binary. And getting this wrong is not just a matter of personal liberty. How is using transgender pronouns sinful, you might ask? Using transgender pronouns is a sin against the ninth commandment and encourages people to sin against the 10th commandment. Using transgender pronouns is a sin against the creation ordinance. Using transgender pronouns is a sin against image bearing. Using transgender pronouns discourages a believer's progressive sanctification, and falsifies the gospel. Using transgendered pronouns cheapens redemption, and it tramples on the blood of Christ. Using transgendered pronouns fails to love my neighbor as myself. Using transgendered pronouns fails to offer genuine Christian hospitality, and instead yields the definition of hospitality to liberal communitarianism, identity politics, and human flourishing. Using transgendered pronouns isn't a sin because the times have changed, and therefore using transgendered pronouns isn't sinful today, but a morally acceptable option in 2012. Sin is sin. The Bible defines this as sin. Sin does not lose its evil because of our good intentions or the personal sensibilities of others. Changing cultural forces can bring sin into fresh light, as the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision did for me, but a renewed focus is no excuse for sin, and no dodge for repentance, not for a real Christian. I repent. This is good. This is really good. And kudos. Bravo. Well said. We need more of this. Moving on. The Necessary Politics of the Church. An article in World Magazine by Miles Smith. Miles Smith writes... American Protestants believed that the church and government governed different realms, but that religion had a political effect and purpose. Religion, faith, and piety formed the minds and morals of American citizens so that they could carry out their civil duties and purposes. Early Republic Baptists firmly committed to religious liberty simultaneously worked with church and state, to educate citizens, and to make the citizenry of the American Republic pious and virtuous. Baptist pastor and historian Abi Tyler Todd noted that Isaac Bacchus, a vehement enemy of state churches and a champion of religious liberty, nonetheless believed in the sweet harmony between religion and civil government. Bacchus urged the teaching of the Bible and religious documents in public schools, and, Todd noted, bristled quote, at the thought of a more secular America where Christianity was removed from the public square, end quote. Baptist commitment to Christianity, having a public voice, did not end with Bacchus' death. Evangelicals, including Baptists, remained committed to Christianity's place in the Republic's political catechesis. In 1965, Foy Valentine, then head of the Christian Life Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, flatly stated that, quote, in whatever way politics is defined, it is neither bad enough for Christians to withdraw entirely from it, nor good enough for Christians to feel no necessity for permeating it with their moral influence end quote. In order for politics not to metastasize into something that would wreck the morals of the nation or turn against Christian moral and social precepts, the church and Christians have to speak to politics. In our own day, some evangelicals want their churches to do politics as its primary mission. Understandable fears about secularization and the sexual revolution have left Christians scared and convinced that only by politicizing their worship and mission can they save themselves. This has led to crass partisan affiliations with partisan politicians and the debasing of the church's inherently spiritual mission. But the church does have a political function, and that function is achieved through education, worship, and the proclamation of the word of God. The church's public witness will be political. The real question is whether that public witness is faithful or unfaithful. On the other hand, we have Peter J. Lighthart writing March 31st of this year for First Things Magazine, a piece titled Jesus as Political Cynic. Lighthart writes, in his recent political life of Jesus, I judge no one, David Lloyd Dusenberry makes the arresting claim that Jesus was what we would call a political realist. Though he didn't mount a zealot rebellion, though he urged his followers to pay Caesar's taxes, Jesus wasn't a political. His keen observations on the ways of the world were full of withering scorn. He undercut zealotry with the warning that violence breeds violence. Quote, all who take up the sword shall perish by the sword, end quote. He warned his disciples of Gentile great ones, Dominate their lessers, unmasked the Roman system of benefaction as a corrupt power game, of gift, graft, and domination, and ridiculed Herod as a fox. The only judge to appear in a parable refuses to hear a woman's case until she wears him down with her incessant complaint. As Dusenbari observes, the unjust judge exemplifies judicial and proto bureaucratic reason at its lowest. Augustine's systematic deconstruction of Roman civilization elaborated the political wisdom he had learned from the Gospels. Jesus was as hard-headed about economics as about politics, because mammon is a powerful and ever-present idol. Jesus posed the stark choice, you cannot serve God and mammon. As he sat in the temple treasury watching pious worshippers leaving their offerings, Jesus condemned scribes who, quote, devour widows' houses, end quote, while luxuriating in long robes, accepting prominent seats at banquets and saying long prayers to bolster their reputation. He was driven to his one act of zealous fury because the temple authorities had turned his father's house into a house of commerce. The priests paid Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus, and the blood-stained coins wend their way through Matthew's passion narrative. Quote, in contriving the death of Jesus, Duesenberry remarks, quote, commerce is served, end quote. There's quote no hint of what we would call political romanticism in Jesus, end quote, nor any idealism about money or about the alliance of power and wealth. On the evidence Dusenberry assembles, I wonder if quote realist end quote, is too weak, more like political cynic. Nowhere is all this more evident than in Jesus' trial before Pilate. Jesus said little because he discerned his words would be useless. He could testify to truth. He is truth. But before a judge whose most famous remark was, what is truth? He was robbed of his prophetic opportunity. He withdrew from Pilate's judicial game and took his place among the outlaws, making silence his most eloquent protest against injustice. Pilate, for his part, knew Jesus was innocent. Three times, he declared, there was no cause to crucify, yet he convicted Jesus anyway. He wasn't content to send him to a cross without first publicly humiliating him. As Dusenberry brilliantly argues, we should be less impressed with Pilate's hand-washing than we are. It was just another hypocritical, blame-shifting purification that cleaned the outside of the cup while leaving Pilate's heart full of murders. Pilate posed as a man of law, but in the end, he bowed to pressure from a mob, Jesus wasn't convicted by evidence. His trial is the world's primal example of the political manipulation of law. It was as he knew it would be the hour of the triumph of darkness. The Jews calling for Jesus' death were no better. They loved darkness more than light, and so they snuffed out the light of the world. They feared Jesus would disrupt Judea and provoke a Roman reaction that would end with the destruction of the temple and the Jewish nation to preserve the people one man needed to die, innocent or not. With the incarnate divine king standing robed and crowned before them, they declared their loyalty, quote, we have no king but Caesar. I take these two articles together, the one from Miles Smith in World Magazine, this other from Peter Lightheart in First Things Magazine. I take these two together and I ask you, will we in the American church know these things? Will we apply The truth of the gospel with regards to these things. Will we be holy for God is holy? Will we execute righteousness? Will we judge with right judgment instead of judging by appearances? Will we show no partiality? And if we will, what conclusions will that bring us to as to our current political situation? Well, for one, we won't be expecting that It's all or nothing. That it's either, on the one hand, there is no whiff of corruption, there's no whiff of injustice, deceit, dishonesty, scheming, maneuvering, or that's all there is. Either way, we won't engage. If we say it's all corrupt, well, then we'll say there's no reason to be engaged at all. And if we say none of it's corrupt, then we'll say we won't get engaged at all. And somewhere between these two extremes is a reasonable position that is in keeping with 2,000 years of Christian history, and that's in keeping with the New Testament, the epistles, the Gospels, the Old Testament, the law, the books of history, the major prophets, the minor prophets. God cares a great deal about justice. God cares a great deal about right judgment. And that didn't all go away with The resurrection of Christ. They didn't all go away with the incarnation, as though now that we have Jesus, we don't have to care about what is right, what is good, what is true. It's all grace now. No, no, it's not all grace. There's common grace, which takes the form of us having time to repent, but it's not just. Do whatever you feel like. Do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you happy. And that's what God wants most, is for you to be happy, for you to be comfortable, for you to have people affirm you and flatter you, give you a clear path. These are critically important matters that the Christian needs to think rightly about to follow Christ. It's one thing to say, I'm in Christ. That's all I need is faith. I believe in Christ. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to not do. That's legalism. No. what is it that Jesus says in the last days? Many will say to him, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness is what he'll call them. He won't call them workers of legalism, interestingly enough. But ironically, legalism is a form of lawlessness because what is it? It's hypocrisy. In some sense, I'm going to be very harsh and legalistic so as to be thought well of by men, all the while claiming that I'm doing these things or not doing these other things to please God, I'll hold others to this high standard. But the standard really is about me having control. It's about me dominating others. Or on the flip side, I'm going to say, I'm free to do whatever I want. And if you tell me no, I'll destroy you. That is the open society. Don't you dare tell me I can't go somewhere, I can't do something, I can't treat people a certain way, or I'll destroy you. Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But then that begs the question, what should the Christian's relationship to the law be? The Great Commission is not go and make disciples of all nations, converting them and baptizing them, and then just... Singing Kumbaya until the end. He says, Go and make disciples of all nations. That's correct. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's correct. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, which is to say, obey. And if we rush too quickly to qualify that and we say, We're supposed to obey, but let's not be legalistic and you don't, you know, you're not becoming righteous because you obey. I say, is the zeitgeist right now pushing in the direction of legalism that we need to guard so much against telling people what is moral, what to do and what not to do according to God? Is the danger so much in that direction that we're talking too much about obeying God? Or is the danger in the other direction that for you to say, Disobedience to God is going to lead to death at a bad end. Therefore, we should be lawless. Therefore, we should just do whatever feels good, whatever we feel like. When I survey the current landscape, I see everybody who wants to have any measure of order and law in a recognizably biblical way being vilified, shouted down, marginalized, pushed out. I see lawlessness being promoted. And even on the flip side, sometimes you will have people saying, ah, but the law says this, 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 and this. What is legalism? Let me ask you that. What is legalism? Self righteousness? How many are self righteous in their lawlessness these days? Judge not. I don't judge anybody. I'm a good person. How do you know you're a good person? Well, I'm an ally to those who are marginalized. Are they really marginalized these days? Don't you dare ask that question. Don't you dare. It's opposite world. What is legalism? Biblically, it would be the idea that you're doing good works, you're obeying the law so as to earn salvation. Paul says that is absolutely incorrect. Paul says that very clearly in the New Testament. Galatians 3.1, for instance. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? What's at issue in our day is not whether we're going to follow the ceremonial law, whether we're going to require Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be Christians. That was what Paul was contending with in Galatians and at Antioch. And yet, what does he say in Corinthians? He doesn't lecture the Corinthians about how it's very good that they're not being legalistic about this man who is living in. Open sin with his father's wife. Paul doesn't commend them for being very open minded, very tolerant, very affirming, very welcoming, very hospitable. He scolds them. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now here's what Paul says. This is very serious. And there's not a word, not even a hint of lectures about legalism. He doesn't say to them, Well, it's very good that you guys are not being legalistic. That's very good. He doesn't avoid putting restrictions on them. He doesn't say, Well, we don't want to get carried away. It's our our fault. It's actually our fault as Christians if this man is handed over to Satan and it goes badly for him. No, he says, hand him over to Satan. And then by the second letter to the Christians in Corinth, the man has repented and Paul says, restore him. Welcome him back if he's repented. It's as simple as that. But what we can't do, we can't do, what we can't do (laughs) is say, well, we're saved by grace through faith. And so therefore there are no expectations. There is no moral law. There is no right and wrong anymore. And so we can just do whatever. And we don't even tell Christians, no. I'll admit there's some difficulty that I have, which I would love to explore more specifically in a future podcast episode where Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? But let's not carry that point so far that we would say as many Anabaptists have for centuries, a Christian should never participate in civil government They should never serve in law enforcement or the military. Because then what happens? We find ourselves in the position of calling those who are in government to come to Christ and then resign their positions. Is that what we should do? Of course not. And if we wouldn't call those who come to Christ, come to faith in Christ while in a position of civil authority to resign their positions, well, then why would we say to Christians, you can't ever join the local police department or you can't join your country's military or you can't run for political office, you can't hold civil authority. You might as well say that a husband can't exercise authority in his home until he's sure that his wife and his children are Christians. That's not the point that Paul is getting at. In fact, in the very next chapter, First Corinthians Six, he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? But this brings us to another piece by Miles Smith. This one in the National Review, published April 15th, titled, What a Democracy Can Lose Without Christianity. Miles Smith writes, Democracy in the abstract is never a guaranteed net benefit to society. Minority groups in the Arab world, particularly religious minorities, learned this the hard way during the aftermath of the 2003 US-led invasion of Iraq. It's a mistake to limit the work of the American founders to raw majoritarian democracy. Rather, the ordered liberty they sought to uphold relied on metaphysical foundations and the Western world's Judeo-Christian social precepts. But in a recent piece at Christianity Today, Paul D. Miller argues that democracy doesn't need a cultural Christian majority. It's true that a democratic society might not need a Christian majority, but liberal democracies all over the world exist because of the Christianization that occurred through European colonization and imperialism. Miller lists South Pacific and African states as examples of non Christian societies that have functional democracies, apparently unaware that much of the South Pacific was Christianized through American, British, and French missionaries. Botswana, one of the supposedly non-Christian countries, or what he ambiguously calls, quote, new Christian societies, end quote, is 80% Christian. Even the, quote, new Christian language is specious. When we consider that Roman Catholic missionaries have been active in Asia and Africa since the 1500s, Japan's government, although never Christian officially, was heavily influenced by Christian commitments To liberal democracy during the Meiji era, Japan has had more Roman Catholic prime ministers than the United States has had Catholic presidents. While Miller's assertion is well intentioned and understandable, given the unusual populist syncretism between religion and politics among revivalist groups, his conclusion is ultimately short sighted and deals with the wrong question. The United States might not need Christianity to retain the electoral institutions that sustain a majoritarian democracy, but Treating the loss of cultural Christianity as a diaphora is neither good for liberal democracy nor the practice of Christianity in the U.S. Miller worries some of his friends, quote, still insist that Christianity and democracy are inextricably linked, end quote. Certainly history shows that Christianity is not linked to any form of government because there is no form of government that is sacred, but history does show Christianity was and is linked to the development of liberal democracy practiced in the United States. Does this mean that every American needs to be a practicing Christian? No. It does mean, however, that society needs to at least believe that the golden rule has an authoritative and binding metaphysical foundation, for example. Maybe an overwhelmingly atheist society can do that, but I doubt it. And what's curious about this, this piece in the National Review, which I'll put a link to, like I'm putting a link to everything else I'm talking about in this episode. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can read the full thing. But he's right about the difference between a Christian democracy and a non-Christian democracy. I'm currently listening to a series of lectures by Timothy Schutt, professor at Kenyon College in Ohio, and this series of lectures is about the Hebrews, Greeks, and Romans Foundations of Western Civilization. He points out that you don't have any of the Greek gods requiring their worshipers to be compassionate, to be kind, to be merciful. There might be a form of righteousness, kind of, sort of, that is demanded, but it's not anything like the righteousness the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob requires. It's not at all similar to the righteousness that Jesus commands his disciples to pursue and embody. So yes, you have democracy in ancient Greece, but it's highly unstable. And it can easily be hijacked by a clever rhetorician, a philosopher, a tyrant, a very wealthy man or a very powerful man and as often as not the greek myths promote this idea that you don't provoke those who are more powerful than you are even if you're right if you do anyways then you kind of get what you have coming to you and that's the cautionary tale that's the moral of the story in many cases in the greek myths and by contrast when you look at the old testament or the tanakh For Jews, if you look at the New Testament, the Gospels, for instance, culminating in the arrest, trial, flogging, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you look at the church after Christ ascends back into heaven, being persecuted, his disciples, his apostles, dying martyrs' deaths, the moral of the story is almost opposite what it would be in many cases for the Greeks. The Greeks would say there was some level of hubris and a lack of cunning if you provoked those who are stronger and you couldn't defend yourselves. And by contrast, God's people are told to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto them. In some sense, the Greeks believe if you seek first These other things, as long as you don't get ahead of yourself, that's the good life. So we have to distinguish. We have to understand that the vision of the good life feeds into how the democratic process works. If only the Greek way of thinking or the Roman way of thinking, pre-Christian, is allowed to inform our democratic processes. Or since we can't really go back in time and have amnesia collectively, not really, The other things that have been born in the post-Christian Western mind, for instance, the ideas of the French Revolution, the ideas of Karl Marx, as expressed, as developed and put into practice in Russia, in China, and elsewhere, if those ideas actually are where democracy in a post-Christian America Will take us, uh, you know, a majoritarian view will see the left trying to get 51%. And as long as they have 51%, might makes right. 51% is stronger than 49%. Might makes right. We will make you be quiet. We will make you surrender your firearms. We will take your private property and redistribute it based on our idea of equity. We will shut down your power plants in the name of environmental justice. We will make food much more expensive. We will create a housing crisis. (laughs) As long as we have 51%, we'll do whatever we can get away with. What does the American church lose in retracting from public life? Because some might think we can all just forget the last two millennia. We can just go back in time to before Christians We're serving in governmental positions, serving in public life, speaking into the public debates. We can just go back in time, and it's not so. What does the church lose in pretending otherwise? Well, for one thing, the church loses credibility even with regards to the, as defined by the very moderates and by the more secularists and the more liberal Christians— the spiritual part of the gospel, that even loses quite a lot of saltiness as Christians communicate about how Jesus is a friend, or Jesus is here to fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts, and there's an emotional and therapeutic aspect. What do the new atheists say? What do the radical leftists say? They say, ah, but your." Peace of mind is based on a lie. It's predicated on an illusion. And look at all of the abuses of Christians for two millennia. How do you make any sense of that? And if the response from too much of the church is no response at all, we don't answer those charges, we don't speak to these things, then the charges stand in the minds of many. And my big question would be, is that what we're called to? Is that in keeping with the historic testimony of the church? Try this on for size, if you will. Going back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, when Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Is it possible that maybe, just maybe, some of the colonialism and the imperialism of professing Christian nations of Europe was an expression of this? And for that matter, if you say, no, 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 absolutely not. Colonialism was all bad imperialism by supposedly Christian nations, it was all bad. If you say that, I say, well, where would these countries be if Western European Christian nations had not built colonies on their shores? Where would these countries be? What would the standard of living be? How free would their people be? How economically prosperous? How politically stable would they be? And you could say, well, I can come up with all kinds of examples of professing Christians in government, acting badly and destabilizing countries. And I say, sure, yeah. I'm not going to claim that everybody who has called themselves a Christian and acted in a political way, either domestically or internationally, has done so in a way that actually honored Christ or was honest But neither do I accept that every time a Christian has done something that you could criticize, the criticism is valid and it's Christians who were out of line because they should never have been serving in government in the first place. They should never have been serving in a military capacity in the first place. They should have never been involved in public affairs in the first place. That is really what's being claimed at root And the historical revisionism is important because it affects how we position ourselves moving forward. If the history of America and of Europe and of the world can be rewritten so as to condemn every Christian who's ever engaged in politics, then it's easy to therefore next say that Christians must not get involved in politics in the present. But then how is that any different than Christians being disenfranchised. You know, I have some real concerns about the presumption that Christians should not impose their morality on others. One, you're assuming that the source of this morality, the source of this standard of right and wrong, is Christians, which is to say, you're accepting a pagan and non Christian way of looking at the Bible, which is to say that this is all just the writings of men. For the Christian who believes that God's word is the authority, and infallible and inerrant because God does not lie the morality the right and the wrong the good and the evil the just and the unjust finds root in what God has said not in what we say but you can't you can't escape man playing an active role in either communicating what God has said repeating it interpreting it explaining it discussing it, debating it, or interpreting it in an active way. So for instance, for example, and I don't know what the numbers would be here for Numbers chapter 5, how many times verses 11 through 31 were ever tested, whether they were ever tested, I would imagine it was rare, it was an uncommon thing. Maybe this was similar to Jesus saying to the crowd who brought him the woman caught in adultery, let he who is without sin, cast the first stone. Maybe this is similar to that where God says, this is the rule and nobody had the guts to try it. Maybe, but let's just suppose for a moment that it was tried, even just once. Put yourself in the shoes of the priest in question here. Some jealous husband is bringing his wife to you as the priest, believing that his wife has been unfaithful. He doesn't have any proof, doesn't have any evidence, but he suspects based on some very questionable details, some questionable facts in terms of their relationship to the conclusion. So he brings his wife to you as the priest and you're supposed to conduct this ceremony by which this woman will be tested for whether she's committed adultery. Are you imposing your morality on somebody else or are you obeying God and God has said this is what to do? All right, such and such a condition has been met Now this is what needs to happen. If you're God's people, this is what you do next. Okay, that's what we're doing, you say, as the priest. What if the woman in question says, well, I don't agree. I don't agree that this is right. Who's she ultimately arguing with? If this is what God has said to do in the case of jealousy, you could say, well, it's not fair that her husband accused her. If she's innocent, it's not fair that her husband just unfairly, unjustly, claimed that she had done something she's innocent of, but then does that change what you do? There's no clause in here, in other words, for if you feel like it, if all parties concerned feel like it. There's no clause in here that everybody has to agree that this is what is right in order for it to be the moral thing, the appropriate thing, the proper thing. Whether we like it, whether we agree with it, whether it would have been our idea All of that is irrelevant because this is what God has said to do. And you could say, well, it's really weird, right? Who does that? Why is this even in the Bible? And I would say how much of our finding this very weird is actually because what's normative in our culture is badly broken and perverse and corrupt. The tabloids are full of celebrities getting divorced, remarried fooling around, being separated, going out with somebody else, having affairs. And the most we do about any of that really is talk about it. The most we do about any of that is write about it, conduct interviews, debate whether, well, he really had it coming. It's really his fault. It's the husband's fault that his wife cheated on him. Or it's really that woman's fault that her husband divorced her and went and married some younger gal. We have those kinds of discussions and debates, but we don't do anything about it for decades because of the sexual revolution, because of the increasing secularization of American public life, in large part because of the public education system, which said we're going to strip the particular religious content from curriculum. We're going to not teach Bible. We're not going to have prayer in schools. Interesting that around the same time that, The Bible and prayer was removed from American public schools. You also saw the legalization of birth control and abortion and no-fault divorce and all together represent man being the measure of all things. That's a very Greek idea. But see, there's a little part of us that even if we're not devout Christians, we still feel some of that leftover handed down legacy from the Greeks. That idea that hubris, hubris is going to incur the wrath of the gods or God, one God, the Supreme God, whoever he is. It's impossible to know. Many people conclude science says this, the Bible says some other thing. I don't know. Who knows? doesn't matter. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's not a new conclusion to come to, by the way, that's not a new way to shrug. And even if you say, well, I believe in God, but it's this amorphous, nebulous idea that God exists and has a wonderful plan for our lives, but you don't know him, you don't trust him, you don't fear him, you don't obey him, then the biblical authors would say, so what? So what that you believe that there's one God? Even the demons believe and shudder. There's no benefit to you believing that there's one God. Not really. I mean, There is because it's better you're closer to a right relationship with a God you believe exists than the person is who says, I don't even believe that he exists. I'm going to live in a constant state of provocation towards those who do believe that he exists. And it's arguably worse for them than it is for those who say, I don't know. I just really, I'm not sure. But we can't maintain what's been built on agnosticism or atheism. Certainly we can't maintain what's been built on neo-paganism. The Romans were not necessarily innovative, but they were very pragmatic. And so you get some who are very pragmatic in our day, and they don't personally believe in Christ, but they see it as very useful. It's very helpful for people, other people, to believe in Christ, or to act like Christ is the Son of God. It's very helpful. And so we should Promote that. We should encourage that. It's a very Roman way of thinking. And the problem there is, at a certain point, the very pragmatic thing on a personal level is to deny all of that and to actively work to dismantle it because a metaphorical gun is being held to your head. You either help to dismantle this or we will destroy you. Returning to Miles Smith's article, he writes, Into the 20th century, the nation retained a commitment to Christianity's moral and cultural underpinnings in the constitutional democratic order. President Franklin Roosevelt told Americans they needed, quote, the sustaining buttressing aid of those great ethical religious teachings which are the heritage of our modern civilization, end quote. This allusion to Christianity became more explicit in the lead up to the United States' entry into the Second World War when FDR posited that fascists hated, quote, democracy and Christianity as two phases of the same civilization. They oppose democracy because it is Christian. They oppose Christianity because it preaches democracy, end quote. Ronald Reagan, who admired FDR and even quoted him as president, spoke constantly about faith and employed religious language in his descriptions of the United States. His regular invocations of the Puritans made it clear where he thought the moral foundations of the republic lay. In 1980, he told a group of evangelicals in Dallas that to Americans, quote, as to the ancient people of the promise, there is given an opportunity, a chance to make our laws and government not only a model to mankind, but a testament to the wisdom and mercy of God, end quote. Reagan saw cultural Christianity as critical to the creation of law in the United States and indispensable to its cultural and political order. He believed, quote, faith and religion play a critical role in the political life of our nation and always have, and that the church, and by that I mean all churches, all denominations, has had a strong influence on the state. And this has worked to our benefit as a nation. End quote. Reagan followed the statement with allusions to the Puritans, the abolitionist movement, and the removal of prayer in public schools. Miller argues that, quote, civic virtue is essential to sustaining an open society. End quote. But, quote, civic virtue is not the same thing as Christian belief, and Christianity is not the only source of it. End quote. What Miller misses, however, is that Christianity was very much the source of our particular American civic virtue received from British common law and the long of Western political, religious, and social thought. Hodge, Archbishop Hughes, Roosevelt, and Reagan did not need a society of evangelicals. They did need a society of people who respected Christianity's foundational place in the development of law. The United States might not need a society of pious Christians to stay a liberal democracy, but it certainly needs a society that respects Christianity to stay one. And I know, for one, Doug Wilson has talked about this. Moscow, Idaho, pastor, author, Doug Wilson has explained, I think very well, that the toleration of various Christian denominations for one another, which marked the beginning of this country, was not predicated on, I don't care what happens to my neighbor. It was predicated on, I am called, I'm commanded to obey. My God, who tells me to love my neighbor as I love myself. I will be accountable to God. As Doug Wilson has pointed out, I would sooner trust myself as a Christian with my atheist neighbor's liberty, and he should too, (laughs) than trust my liberty to my atheist neighbor. There was a situation here a few days ago wherein some boys who live in this neighborhood were out and about. And the oldest brother among these boys was yelling very unkindly, very aggressively towards his younger brothers. And one of my sons, Daniel, to be more specific, called him out on it. He happened to be hanging out with these younger boys and another boy and maybe another boy just hanging out. And my son, Daniel, yelled back at this other older boy who might be a little bit older than Daniel, a little bit taller. He said, Hey, don't talk to your little brothers that way. And the response he got was, you can't tell me what to do. I'll talk to them however I want to. They're my little brothers. And the response from my son, Daniel was, I don't care if they're your little brothers. You don't need to talk to them that way. I'm not going to let you talk to them that way. Just because you're older and you're bigger than they are. That doesn't mean you can be mean to them. And he stormed off in a huff, this other boy, but I'll tell you for a fact that he learned it from his own father, this boy. And likewise, my son learned it from his father, me. There was another instance with these same younger boys from the same family in recent days where one of them was similarly being very harsh, very unkind, calling his younger brother a dummy because that's how his older brother talks to him and that's how their father talks to them. And they are not Christians In fact, when we very first moved in, there was a conversation in which they came across the street, they welcomed us to the neighborhood, some passing reference was made to our kids all having biblical names, and I didn't make a big deal about us being Christians, it was just making introductions, and I said, yeah, they are all biblical names, and the response was, without any more prompting than that from this other dad, well, our religion is just to be nice to people. And I didn't argue with him. I didn't challenge him. It didn't really seem like there was much of a welcome for having a further discourse on the matter. But when I got inside with my family, I said, (laughs) did you guys catch that? And they said, yeah, it was kind of weird. And then as the past three and a half years have proceeded, I think, how's that working out for you? How's that whole just being nice to people as your religion thing working out for you? I don't see it. And somebody could turn right around. And I'm sure if this other neighborhood man I'm talking about were to hear my podcast, he would say, yeah, you're not excellent to people either. You're no Bill and Ted. Be excellent to each other. You're not always nice. And I say, that's not the point. That's not what it's predicated on. By God's grace, there's actually an avenue for forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. You don't get the, as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us, unless you actually believe that God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. So we sin against each other. We do. I am sometimes harsh and unreasonable and impatient. Sometimes I make mistakes and then I realize after the fact, oh, that probably came out wrong. That probably was needlessly offensive. I probably shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. There was a line and I crossed it. I'll say that sometimes to my wife and kids. There was a line and I crossed it and I apologize. I shouldn't have said that. Got carried away talking about some situation or what have you, or, oh shoot, I totally forgot to do this thing that I said I was going to do. I'm sorry. I apologize. Totally slipped my mind. But by the grace of God, there's actually a pathway for being restored. Our relationship with each other can be restored because our relationship with God can be restored. And when you say, there is no God, or if there is a God, we can't possibly know him. You are lost when somebody sins against you or when you sin against somebody else. And it can be devastating to admit that you're wrong. It can be the end. I think cancel culture is in large part the product of broken homes, broken churches, a broken relationship with God, which then in turn results in broken relationships between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between siblings. And so actually, interestingly enough, plot twist, arguably The best thing we can do for our country, not the only thing, don't hear what I'm not saying. The best thing we can do for our country is invest in our marriages, having strong marriages, invest in our children, love them, lead them, protect them, provide for them, teach them, train them, discipline them, require obedience and honor from them. They're commanded by God. That's not my morality. It's God's morality that you obey your father and your mother and the Lord for this is right. You honor your father and your mother and the Lord for this is right. The command with the promise that your days in the land might be long. That's not my morality. That's God's morality. And at what point did God ever say, oh, you don't agree with my standard of righteousness? Oh, okay. Well, it would be wrong for me to impose my morality on you. God doesn't do that. So how do we have a different standard of judgment when it comes to people? So my son Daniel says, hey, don't talk to your little brother that way. And in the case of the younger boys, he told me there was a change. And I would bet you that part of that is due to my son looking out for them and them having a sense of stability and safety when they're around my sons, because my sons aren't going to allow them to get bullied, tormented, verbally harassed or abused or degraded by their oldest brother Also, to my sons are going to be kind to them in a way that builds them up instead of tearing them down. And if my boys say something unpleasant or do something unpleasant, they've been taught to apologize and to ask forgiveness. And what is lost in a community, in a neighborhood, in a town, in a city, in a state, in a nation, when we no longer do that? What it turns into is, no, I didn't prove it. And then if you have the power to destroy somebody before they have a chance to prove that you have wronged them, then you do. And then that serves as a cautionary tale to everybody else, apart from Christ. We become more and more like the Greeks. We say, well, the moral of the story is keep your head down, know your place, stay silent before your betters. There's some of that in the Bible, but it's not the rule. It's the exception. Practically speaking, in the short term, you should be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. You should understand that it is better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Sometimes discretion is the better part of valor, actually, and it's not just cowardice. Sometimes that is thinking more holistically, pragmatically. What you should do is you should think, I'm going to turn the other cheek here, like Jesus said. But at a certain point, the only catalyst for reformation, revival, repentance, is that the saints are willing to lay down their lives because this is life, actually, life eternal. I won't deny my Lord. Christ is Lord. You say Caesar is Lord. I say Christ is Lord. And I can't go with you on your civic religion because those are the choices, ladies and gentlemen. It's not values neutral if you keep your Christianity out of public life. It's just a question of who is going to make the golden statue of themselves and demand that you bow down and worship it when the bell rings. Who is going to have a fiery furnace built to throw you into it when you refuse to bow down? It's just a question of who is going to plot against you because you are pursuing excellence, and at a certain point they're going to throw you to the lions if they get half a chance. In a post-Christian society, we will find increasingly that there is no new thing under the sun, and That everything that is being tried right now has been tried before. In fact, we might recognize the possibility that there was a time in the history of the Greeks and the Romans where they worshiped the Lord, our God, rightly. Noah and his sons, when they got off of the ark, knew that God was God. How many generations before each branch went astray, went whoring after other gods, as we find that word. 83 times in the Old Testament. How many generations did it take? I don't know. In some sense, it doesn't matter. We see it happening very quickly. It doesn't take very many generations in our case. For there to be a respect for Christianity, a respect more to the point for Christ, the name of Christ. For there to be a respect for the Bible. Why is it that up until very recently, oaths were sworn on a copy of the Bible? and only? Recently, have you seen people being blasphemous and mocking America's historic Christian faith by swearing their oaths of office or oaths to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth on a Superman comic or on a copy of the Koran or on a Satanic Bible? Only in very recent years has that become a thing. And what's the point? The point is to let the Christians in the community know, I don't need you. I don't care what you think is right and wrong. In fact, I might just want to do what you think is wrong just to stick another finger in your eye. I might refuse to do what's right just because you told me that that's the right thing to do. That'll show you. That's nothing new. But so also Christians speaking out against that and calling for repentance and warning of judgment is nothing new. This just happens to be a different verse in the same song that's been sung for 2,000 years and more. If you read Hebrews, you recognize that the hall of faith in the Old Testament is also this great cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. More to come on these and related questions soon. I would like to talk more about this post-liberal temptation as well as whether America was ever a Christian nation, as some claim. I've got several articles I want to talk with you about. Plus, also, I expect I will be finishing the Modern Scholar, Hebrews, Greeks, and Romans Foundations of Western Civilization series of lectures soon, maybe today. We'll see. And then I'll tell you about that as well. But as I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.